This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast, we are talking about Lincoln's dog Fido and his love of animals. the abraham lincoln podcast my name is jeremy with me this evening are rail splitter mary hey rail splitters and rail splitter nick what's up people out there electronic universe listening to us and we are so lucky this week to have a guest with us we have with us matthew algio who is the author of abe and fido which is a book about abraham lincoln and his dog Fido. He is also the author of Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, Last Team Standing, which is about the Steagles, Pedestrianism, and The President is a Sick Man. His work has been featured on NPR's All Things Considered, Marketplace, and Morning Edition, and he is here to talk to us about some of those things, but most specifically about his work uh, with uh, Lincoln and animals, specifically Fido Lincoln. So, Matthew Algio, welcome to the Rail Splitter. Hey guys, it's uh, great to be with you, and uh, an honor to be on the preeminent Abraham Lincoln podcast. I, I like that word preeminent. I think we should, I think we should go with that. Wow, thank you. <laughs> so um, looking, thank you overselling us for sure. <laughs> All right, well, we're gonna we're gonna run with it. Uh, well, thank you, thank you, Matthew, for joining us this evening uh, and recording it for us this week. Um, real, I guess to kind of start the conversation more generally speaking, um, you've you've kind of carved a niche for yourself uh, in kind of more. Um, I don't know if I want to say obscure or just kind of yeah. you know unique little corners of the history world. What what's your process for finding a topic and what led you um, specifically to Fido Lincoln? Yeah, um, I guess I specialize in uh, pretty obscure little events in U.S. history. Um, you read that list of non-best-selling books that I've uh, managed to string together over the past 13 years. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. A lot of the stories, the first book I did, that book about the Steagles, which uh, in case people don't know, in 1943, the NFL was so short of players, they had to merge the Steelers and the Eagles, and they became the Steagles for a season. And the team is all 4F, and the quarterback is blind in one eye, and the wide receiver's deaf and all that. Um, that was a story I had originally done for an NPR program called uh, uh, Only a Game. when They did a reunion of the Steagles players in Pittsburgh in 1943. And uh, so that, that got the ball rolling. My wife, at the same time that I... Uh, signed that contract for that book in 2005. My wife was offered a position with the U.S. Foreign Service. She's an American diplomat, and uh, so we live overseas most of the time. So writing books has been a really good um, uh, occupation for me because uh, we can do. I can do most of the research when I'm back in Washington between tours, and then when we go uh, overseas, I can do most of the writing. So the books that I've I've done usually, yeah, I've just sort of come across ideas that um, I'm able to convince uh, 
uh, my publisher to give me a little bit of money to go and uh, go and write. The Fido book actually came up, came about while I was working on the Happy Truman book, and I, I drove through Springfield. Uh, the book, the, the Truman book, is about a road trip that he and Bess Truman took right after they left the White House, and they drove from Missouri to the East Coast and back. And on the way, they drove through Springfield. And um, I, uh, I drove through Springfield as I was recreating the trip, and that was the first time I had ever been in the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, and that was where I was introduced to Fido. They uh, had the time, and I probably still have one of the one of the photographs, the Ingmeyer photographs that uh, were taken. Um, we're not sure exactly when, uh, but uh, Lincoln uh, at, at some point three photographs at least were taken of Lincoln's dog Fido. Um, either before the Lincolns went to Washington or after the assassination. And one of those is on display at the, um, at the uh, library there in Springfield. So, I mean, Lincoln plus dogs, there you go. Uh, so it's, it's a home run. Um, but it was a good story. And the more I did the research on it, uh, the more interesting it came to me to find out the history of, of Lincoln and his, uh, his attitude toward animals, which uh, was really extremely progressive for the time, uh, you know, finding, researching some of the things people did for entertainment in the, uh, you know, first half of the 19th century, uh, a lot of it uh, uh, involved uh, cruelty to animals, and uh, Lincoln was very much opposed to this, very vocal about it, which was unusual for the time. So as I did more research into it, I thought maybe there's something there that's just a little more than, you know, just the story of Lincoln and his dog, but kind of Lincoln and animals, which is one of those little, little tiny bits of, of, of Lincoln's life that um, hadn't been written about a whole lot. And that's how the book came about. Excellent. So in your process, because um, I think that Lincoln and animals kind of falls into a, an area of Lincoln scholarship. Um, one, I think there's a need for the book, which is, I'm, I was happy to see that you had filled. Um, but I think sometimes we... Uh, folks that aren't scholars, but people like us who are, you know, we're not historians, we're just kind of enthusiasts, may extrapolate things about Lincoln um, because they want him to be something. So what what type of historic record were you able to find to, to write the book as a historian as opposed to, like, he was a good person, so he probably was also good to animals? Like how how did you do your research? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I should say I'm. I'm an unlicensed historian, as I describe myself uh, on Twitter. I mean, I, I don't have a degree in history, and uh, I majored in folklore, and um, and, and so I I just kind of I, my background's really in in uh, journalism and reporting. I worked as a reporter for many years, uh, mostly for public radio stations. Um, but anyway, uh, the 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 depth of the the research really uh, was looking more at all of Lincoln's um, uh, encounters, I guess, or stories about Lincoln concerning animals <laughs> and trying to um, uh, draw something out of that. To you know, I, I don't really mean an argument in the book as much as sort of collect all these things and put them out for for to draw their own conclusions. I mean, uh, obviously, there's not a lot of firsthand information about the uh, Fido himself. Um, we do have recollections from the neighbors who looked after Fido after Lincoln left Springfield to go to Washington. Um, and it, it was interesting to me, like what you said about, you know, I talk in the book a little bit about how um, vegetarians have a kind of adopted Lincoln, that they'll say Lincoln was a vegetarian 
course, he wasn't a vegetarian. Um, there's a quote uh, that uh, Lincoln has uh, attributed to Lincoln that I don't remember exactly, but uh, you know something about we should treat animals as well as we treat people, that sort of thing. Um, so people do have, a, I think, especially with Lincoln, have a tendency to put their own uh, you know, lay their own vision of what they wish he was. Look, he loved animals. He also had a job uh, for a time slaughtering pigs. Um, he, he was, you know, again, the great thing about, about Lincoln. I mean, he he was also a realist. He was a pragmatist. He knew people had to eat. Um, I talk about, uh, you know, uh, if, if you lived, you couldn't live without leather in uh, in the middle of the 19th century you wouldn't have harnesses for horses or shoes or collars for the dog um so yeah you have to be a little careful about uh you know sanctifying lincoln when it comes especially to this because people love animals and they love their dogs they love their pets they love their cats lincoln did love animals uh, as i think the book shows um but you know he wasn't uh he, he wasn't a radical PETA. uh, uh advocate for his time at all mm -hmm. yeah and i i am familiar i have heard folks try to claim the vegetarianism thing i'm a vegetarian and i, I like to say like he wasn't but he would would have been right you know because <laughs> right. because that's yeah. definitely something i could prove and extrapolate right. from the historic yes. record so um i don't know if one of my colleagues want to jump in and ask a couple questions yeah, I can. Um, why don't you give us, uh, if you don't mind, I know you do a great job doing this in the book, kind of a little bit of rundown of some of Lincoln's uh, first pets um, before we get to Fido and kind of the impact it had on him. Yeah, he had, uh, when he was very small, one of his earliest memories was of uh, going to a neighbor, and I think this was still in Kentucky, and the neighbor's pig had just had a litter of piglets and uh, told Lincoln, if you can carry it home, you can you can keep one of them. And uh, Lincoln took the pig home and uh, really adopted it as a pet. And he had a soft spot for uh, for pigs the rest of his life. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the pig the pig that grew into a, a, a nice fat pig, partly because of uh, Abe's uh, efforts to keep it well fed. And you know, again, this is the, the way it was in in uh, eighteen thirteen or fourteen, whatever this would have been. The parents in the fall, when the pig got nice and fat, decided that it was time to butcher the pig. And uh, Abe realized what was going on and was absolutely mortified by this and tried to run away with the pig. and And, uh, and they brought him back home. And then the next morning, Abe went out again, but this time his father had put the pig in a in a pen in a small cage. And so Abe wasn't able to uh, to save it. So it it was really, I think, had a you know, don't want to overanalyze these things or get too uh, psychological about it. Um, but that must have been pretty traumatic uh, for this little pet pig that Abraham Lincoln raised for probably, you know, nine months, maybe even a year, uh, then to have the pig um, butchered. Uh, and and uh, he, uh, he uh, never forgot that. You, you encountered that a lot, really, uh, in that time period where children, uh, and of course, we had a much different relationship with animals. I mean, uh, there was one, I forget what the statistic is, one horse for every four or five people in the country. I mean, everybody knew how to ride a horse. And everybody had close encounters with animals. And so uh, children, especially who lived on farms, would get very close to some of the animals, some of the calves. Uh, and, and the pigs and the chickens. And so this was really part of the life experience of people learning that, you know, animals in, in, in the viewpoint prevailing at the time were put on this earth to, uh, uh, to serve the needs of people. 
and uh, and that's the way it was. Uh, later on, Lincoln had dogs. He seemed to have an affection for yellow dogs. He had uh, at least two yellow dogs before Fido that we know of. Um, and uh, he also had a very uh, had a soft spot for cats, especially kittens. There's the famous story uh, during the Civil War where he uh, uh, went to the front and saw uh, uh, some kittens and ordered the I think it was the general to uh, uh, to take care of the kittens. Uh, another encounter with pigs where he rescued it from the mud. It really it really was kind of uh, astonishing to me when I look back at the various biographies and in the Lincoln papers, all the different stories uh, uh, about animals. That come up when you do Lincoln research, and of course his life is so momentous uh, that those stories tend to become, you know, amusing sidebars. But I really thought when you add them all up and put them all together, all these individual stories kind of add up to something. That it feels like there's something a little more there. I'm not saying it's just like you know we need to have entire college courses dedicated to Lincoln and animals, but there, there is a little something there that I think has kind of been overlooked just because of the magnitude of, of Lincoln's life. So yeah, he had a lot of encounters with animals. Uh, he had a lot of pets, a lot of pets in the white house after, um, after he moved to Washington. So, you know, it was clear to me that it was, it was probably worth exploring a little bit. So, so I could say Lincoln's a cat guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I also am a cat guy. I actually have a diabetic cat, which is quite quite the struggle. Um, do you have that, to do Do you have to do uh, injections? Yeah, we actually have to give him two insulin shots a day. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, it's, like forever. Uh, I think so. Yeah. He's an old grouchy cat, so we don't really ever take him in. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I just like to make fun of my diabetic cat. I find it humorous. My parents, um, my parents have a diabetic cat too. Just he was just diagnosed, and it's it's two injections a day. Yeah, I look. I love cats. We have two of them. I love them as much as the next cat lover. But the daily injections, man, that's a lot to ask. Yeah, I have a dedicated I'm sure cat. Guy. That, but that's all covered by your cat insurance, right? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, what I love about the stories and something that I uh, also felt when I read about, you know, the book that you wrote about Harry Truman, The Road Trip, also and uh, Grover Cleveland, one about him getting the surgery out on the yacht. I, I think these stories that some people will call obscure or unique, I, I love that it kind of like humanizes them more um, because you get this different side, you know, you get to see him kind of like a and just like an average Dave, definitely for Harry Truman, the Harry Truman book you did, and with these stories about Lincoln and animals. So I love that you do that aspect of it. And Thanks. I think it provides another layer for people. Um, one, of the, one of the things that was cool was finding the um, learning about the ledgers that they kept at the drugstore in Springfield, mm -hmm. and that somehow miraculously uh, a couple of them survived. And we can see, uh, you know, Lincoln buying uh, these, you know, some of them are just total quack remedies, apparently, for, you know, uh, uh, for um, uh, Mary's headaches. Uh, he, he, he buys the drug that was apparently used to deworm Fido. And it's just a really cool uh, way to see, uh, yeah, to humanize these, these characters is like basically seeing his shopping list. I, I, I do love stuff like that. I love stuff like that. You know, Harry Truman on, on the road trip kept the um, little mileage cards in the glove compartment. Every time he stopped for gas his whole life, he would always mark down how much gas, how much he paid for because he liked to calculate mileage. He was very uh, 
anal retentive about this. He was always <laughs> tracking his mileage. He loved to do the math. And and like they have they have one of those at the Truman Library on display. And that's just like really, really uh uh cool. It's kind of insightful. In I, I just love that image just as a fan of well, fan of Truman's, but just like, you know, he's basically a middle-aged to older man with like the thick glasses just sitting in his car doing that every, every time, like i mean yeah. that could be that's just like anybody usa you know it's just i think that's i wish I, I wish i wish lincoln had been a better record keeper it seems um uh, we don't get a lot of that and of course a lot of the papers were destroyed so we we, we don't know we're burned we don't know what was lost but um yeah that's why the um the drugstore ledger i think was just uh Probably like one of one of my favorite parts of of, of the, one of my favorite things I learned while researching the book. No, that, that's awesome, and I agree hundred percent. Mary, I'll let you go ahead and add the next question. Okay, so um, how did Fido come to be part of the Lincoln family? Uh, it's a bit of a mystery. We know when. We know eighteen fifty five because uh, that's actually the first reference in the in the ledger from uh, Dillard's the drugstore that I think it was called Vermifuge uh, was a drug that you gave dogs when they had uh, worms. I can only um, speculate. It's speculation, uh, kind of based on the prevailing um, um, culture at the time, that it was a stray um, that either he or one of the boys, probably one of the two younger boys, uh, brought him home. And um, it's funny, the relationship with ownership of pets was a little more fluid at the time. Um, It's possible that Fido uh, spent time with other families. I mean, pretty much any family that would would feed a stray dog, you know, the dogs would remember. Um, But uh, we know eventually Fido became very well uh, ensconced in the family, just from letters that mention Fido and, of course, the photographs and everything. But basically, he was a stray dog, uh, very lucky stray dog. Um, we know he didn't pay anything for him. He's clearly not a, a, a purebred, and those were the only dogs that anybody would have paid money for at the time. In fact, stray dogs were largely considered a nuisance. They would have coals in cities uh, just basically to destroy all the stray dogs uh, that that people could find. Cities would pay, you know, a couple pennies a, a head for, for kids to bring in uh, dogs that they had killed. So uh, Fido really lucked out. I mean, not just being adopted, but by being adopted into a, a family that took very good care of him. Uh, it was unusual. He was an inside dog. He was allowed to stay inside. He was allowed to sleep on the, um, I think it was the seven-foot sofa that Lincoln had especially made. So he could lay down, uh, uh, even, even, you know, when he, uh, uh, came in all dirty. And of course, Springfield is a very muddy town at that time in the 1850s. Uh, Mary apparently didn't, wasn't crazy about dogs, but, um, uh, but did suffer Fido. And, uh, and so Fido until the end, uh, was a very lucky dog. And it's interesting. You mentioned it was probably the two younger boys, Willie or Tad, that found him. Because can you tell us what happened to uh, Robert Lincoln? Well, um, I think Bob uh, uh, um, inherited some of his uh, uh, mother's uh, dislike for dogs, but his was founded uh, in an incident uh, where um, uh, he was he was bitten by a dog. He was. Uh, scared very, uh, very much by this incident. So, um, 
Bob didn't like dogs. Uh, Bob also went off to school uh, around this time, uh, and so uh, he had less of a uh, less of a connection to the home, I think, than the than the two younger boys did. Um, but Bob and Mary did not like dogs. Is there anything um, that would suggest, perhaps, my sister has a dog who's, she's kind of trained to be like a comfort dog um, to take to hospitals and things like this, and this is kind of like a thing now that dogs do quite a lot, that that any of the Lincolns found any comfort from Fido um, with the losses they suffered, specifically with Willie? I mean, I know they weren't uh, weren't with, Mm -hmm. Fido wasn't with them when, um, later, I I guess, but, or with Eddie, I I guess, not Willie. I think, um, uh, again, I mean, it's speculation, but all you can do is speculate. But it was interesting that Lincoln adopted Fido right after uh, he lost the election for Senate the first time he ran, right? So this is 1854 or 55. Um, he tried to win the Senate seat. This is before um, the, the, the debates with uh, Douglas. Mm-hmm. So that at the time was was the worst political defeat that Lincoln had ever suffered. People said it uh, it uh, put him into uh, a, a very deep melancholy. Um, and uh, again, you know, the cause and effect I have to be careful about, but apparently by the end of 1855, he had adopted Fido. And by 1856, he is uh, resurrecting his political career and preparing uh, to run for the Senate again. Um, so I do think the dog gave Lincoln some comfort. I mean, it was a very difficult time for him, this period in 1854 to 1856. And, uh, I, and I mentioned in the book, I mean, it's, it's, it's studies have shown, um, uh, but, uh, but to animals, pet, especially dogs, um, uh, have a very positive effect on people's mental health. And uh, uh, we know Lincoln struggled with his own issues regarding mental health properly. And uh, I don't think it's uh, uh, inappropriate to assume that Fido had a positive effect on him that way. So in a sense, Fido gave him a lot to overcome that loss so he could run again. Without Fido, we don't have President Lincoln. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> without you Fido, just put that on a T for you. Like you're, getting, you're getting into the spirit of things here. If, uh, yeah. if, I, could, if I could use that as a blur blind. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, right. We lose the Civil War if not for Fido. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's obvious. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I say. I don't want to get to It's weird. It's kind of a weird balancing act with this book, especially because you want it to be – I sometimes think it either should have been more serious or more fun. Um, if you know what I mean, you're kind of you're kind of walking that fine line between, um, you know, just just kind of having having fun with the stories and, and also trying to be serious about the subject matter. Um, you know, it's don't I, I I mean I'm not qualified to make any psychoanalysis, you know, postmortem on Lincoln. Nobody is, um, but it's it's something that you can't help but. Uh, speculate about, you know, the relationship he had with animals was really unique uh, at a time when pulling the heads off geese was a good time. Hey, let's go gander pulling, you know, let's go bear baiting. They're going to stick some dogs on the bear tied to the tree. Well, that's what people did for fun. So Lincoln's attitude, uh, like we talked about earlier, he wasn't what today we would consider, you know, uh, uh, fairly radical, but at the time it was pretty radical. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's something that's 
it's worth exploring how it ties into uh, his personality and even his politics. I agree. I think one of the more remarkable things is just how like progressive he was as a child. Because you talk about a couple stories there where he intervened on behalf of the animals, you know, and to do that as a child, you know, when so much peer pressure is on you to just kind of conform and go along. Um, could you kind of talk about a couple of those stories? Yeah, uh, one was I think they were putting the hot coals on a uh, uh, on a turtle, um, and it was kind of terrorizing the turtle, obviously, and the turtle can't escape the coals that are on his back. And Lincoln went and and, uh, and uh, rescued the turtle and chastised his friends. Uh, he wrote an essay um, in in grade school that we 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 don't have the essay itself, but we have the recollections of his classmates, and the essay was about. Um, uh, uh, animal treating uh, animal welfare and uh, animal cruelty and how it was wrong to be cruel to animals it was said he um he said that an ant's life to it is to it is as dear as our lives are to us i mean yeah and, and you mentioned i mean to to have these opinions uh, at a young age as he did even uh, is even more remarkable i go back to that pig story man that's got to be pretty it's got to mess with you a little bit when your pet pig gets put on the dinner plate. Um, and uh, I think he had natural sensitivity um, uh, for the suffering of, of animals. And um, I, I think that manifested itself in a lot of different ways. To me, it shows like just how deep his, uh, his empathy was. Um, and again, it goes back to how ahead of his time he was like just in his, his love of animals um, and even to me, it's not surprising given his thoughts on, on slavery as well. Like it, it kind of ties into, into that as well. Just this deep level of empathy he had that I, I don't think a lot of people had at that time. And that's what um, your book kind of reiterated to me was just like what an empathetic man he really was. Yeah, it's um, especially for his time. Again, um, it was so unusual for a, a public figure, especially to be uh, so committed even privately to uh, uh, animal, uh, I don't want to say animal rights, but just animal concern. And uh, it's, it's, you know, he gets into dangerous territory about equating his concern for animals and concern for slavery, but his biographers have said that you really see something in it, especially when you look at young Lincoln and his concern for animals. This is um, presaging something. It's anticipating something bigger in, in the rest of his life, later in life. And so, um, yeah, uh, empathy is, um, uh, is, is precisely the word for it. Yeah, it's uh, unusual. Uh, quality in such abundance, I would say, as, as Lincoln had it. And I think his love of animals, too, kind of gives him a connection to a lot of people. Um, the, the one thing that I, I took away from your book was that it's a book that I would recommend to people that like dogs and animals. Mm -hmm. And I see it as a way to, you know, it's like, okay, and it's about Abraham Lincoln. I can see it as a way to introduce them to Lincoln as well, because there's something that touches a lot of people in a certain way when they find out that somebody is into animals. And uh, I think I, I was really, I mean, one of the things I really hoped was that people 
uh, obviously, if you know Lincoln inside out, there's not going to be much new for you in here. But I think people, uh, like you said, who are interested, uh, who love dogs and, and love animals, it kind of gives a different perspective on those issues by looking at Lincoln and kind of looking at the history of animal welfare, animal rights, pet keeping, um, you know, just the idea that uh, uh, everything the Lincolns did for Fido, they had to do themselves. There was no pet store. There was no pet supply. They had to find, a, a, a you know, a, somebody to fashion a collar for him and to feed him and to, and to bathe. There were no products available. There was no industry around pet keeping. And so uh, it, it really even demonstrates even more the, the dedication that, uh, that the Lincolns had to this animal uh, to dedicate the resources they did. Um, in a way, too, it was kind of a status symbol, you know, being able to keep a pet being able to spend money to feed an animal that doesn't do any work for you was a pretty revolutionary concept, uh, even as late as the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, most people could not afford to do that. And so it also says something about Lincoln's status, that he was able to keep this animal and, um, and care for it so well. So why do you think, I mean, I, I've read a lot of biographies about Lincoln, um, I, I I knew old Bob. I know old Bob was his horse. I you know I felt fairly familiar with that. Fido seems to be overlooked. Um, I just very quickly and this is not well maybe it is scientific. I don't know. Um, I'm a big fan of Michael Burlingame's work, um, right. and I have um, volume one here is, is pulled up on my Kindle, and I just did a quick search for the word Fido, and it does not come up in volume one of the. Kind of, I think, what's becoming accepted as um, the best multi-volume current um, biography of Lincoln. And he doesn't mention yeah. Fido, um, yeah. which, and I don't think it's because of you've written the book. I think you you've, you support it pretty well that for a two million word biography of Lincoln, it feels like Fido should have shown up somewhere. <laughs> so why do you think that he's kind of overlooked? Uh, again, it's just when you live a life as eventful as Lincoln, sometimes, uh, I think especially in big histories, um, that uh, details just fall through the cracks. Um, you know, there's so much going on, especially in Lincoln's life in this period, uh, from 54 to 60, obviously. Um, you know, I, 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 I wonder what uh, Burlingame's first, uh, you know, the first draft probably was a million words, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and I'm sure a lot of it had to get cut out. And I sometimes wonder if that's not the first stuff that goes, um, you know, it's easy to sort of trim out without having to affect the rest of the book. Um, in, in a way, it's just the logical choice to, to cut material. So I just think part of it is that Lincoln's life was so big that a lot of small details get overlooked. That's why we could still write Lincoln books. Right, I, I think that's a, exactly. Yeah, that's true, but I think I think you make a a really good point. But it, but it brings up another thought. Many many small details get overlooked, but many many small details get included, like the the wild turkey story. Right, like that's included all the time, right. and that's like you know one evening or one you know in, when he was a young child. I think there's two things going on. One, there's probably not a whole lot of verifiable stuff that happened in the early years so we're grasping at everything but that's also a fairly small 
element that really speaks to the same things that your book was speaking to, but that seems to be included a lot more, and, and it seems to be a little bit more well-known. Yeah, you know, the other thing, uh, the, the, the turkey story, I think, has been around a long, long time. I forget the original source for that. Um, the Fido story was really a latecomer to the to the to the lore of Lincoln. I think it wasn't until, uh, and I have it in the book, was it the 1940s or even the 50s that uh, 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 Dorothy Meserve I uh, did the research. She came across a picture, a photograph, one of the photographs of Fido I got interested in was able to track down two of the boys, uh, now old men, who uh, had, had uh, played with uh, Lincoln's kids and could tell her the Fido story. So the Fido story really doesn't uh, doesn't come about until uh, those photographs are discovered. Sometime uh, the photographs were discovered, I think, in the 30s, and then it wasn't until the 40s uh, that the story came out. She did an article for uh, Life magazine, I believe, that talked about Fido. Um, and so I think that's another. Um, it, it hasn't. Uh, it, it just hasn't become kind of entrenched in the canon, I guess. You know. So it's not something that everybody can just grab. You know, people have become accustomed to telling the, the wild turkey story. This is a story. He shoots the bird. He's trying to impress his parents. And he sees the bird's dead. And it makes a real impact on him. And then he never says he never hunted any larger game again after that. Uh, so, yeah, you do hear the turkey story a lot. You don't hear as much about Fido. So I, I, I wonder if that has a little bit to do with it. But it's an excuse for Michael Burlingame to forget Fido. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, I can jump in. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, just talk about the little details. Uh, those little details is really kind of what, you know, humanizes, like I was saying earlier. So I am glad you uh, wrote the book. So it definitely added another layer to Lincoln, and I appreciate that. Um, also, another thought I had, uh, the pictures. So I, I kind of like the mystery surrounding the pictures. We're not quite sure when they were taken, how they were taken. I know there's kind of two uh, main ideas behind it. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah. Uh, so there are three photographs that we know of. They were taken by a photographer named Ingmeyer. The uh, story has long been that Lincoln had the photos taken before uh, the family left Springfield for Washington in early 1861. Uh, he had photographs taken for as a memento for the boys to keep uh, uh, when they got back to Washington. Um, there's another theory that says the photos were taken after the assassination. Uh, when Lincoln's body was brought back to Springfield, Fido was at the house and uh, was uh, among the mourners who, who went to the house uh, and also uh, was said uh, to have watched the parade. And there's some thought that somebody uh, trying to capitalize on Fido's uh, fame in Springfield had the photographs taken that they could then sell as, um, I never get this right, is it carta vista? Is that how you say that? little, mm -hmm. Those little cards, <laughs> photographs, like trading cards, I guess, you know, that they could sell. Um, so, uh, so that's the other theory, that uh, somebody took them afterwards. Uh, Ingmeyer, the photographer, who was an interesting guy in his own right, um, that's one of the fun things about doing a book like this is you get to learn about people like Ingmeyer and uh, I talk about um, uh, Billy the Barber, who is another guy who definitely is, I don't know if it's worth a book, but there's probably something in, in uh, Billy the Barber's relationship with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, 
Billy the Barber was a Haitian immigrant, uh, Roman Catholic in uh, Springfield at the time. But anyway, uh, Ingmar with a photographer uh, who took the pictures. He's not listed in the city directories in 1860, uh, but is listed in uh, 1865. So that seems to support the theory that the photographs were taken actually uh, right around, right after the, the assassination. But we don't know. Uh, we don't know uh, what precipitated these photographs. It wasn't unusual for pets to be photographed, actually. Uh, Well-to-do families, it was another status symbol, was to have photographs of your pet. And so um, that, uh, um, that in and of itself was not unusual. But clearly, uh, the, the fact that it was Lincoln's dog makes these photographs a little bit more special. But we, we don't know. Uh, we may never know. Yeah, I, uh, I think I, I really like that uh, this kind of your book kind of came out of a visit to Springfield. Um, I just when you were talking about the barber walking around Springfield, like there's so much Lincoln around. And I know I talk about this a lot for our listeners, but I like I distinctly remember there's like a little plaque where you can read that that's where the barber shop was. So you can stand there and they've got a little anecdote there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I've, I've heard of the barber, but I would it'd be interesting to see if somebody did a smaller piece on that. Um, maybe not a book, maybe a book, who knows? Um, I think we're all maybe trying to avoid talking about poor Fido's demise, but, um, is that something that you wanted to touch on a little bit? Uh, I will say, uh, in the Disney version, the movie version, uh, it's going to be a very different ending. (laughs) Uh, the, uh, the real life version is, uh, is not, uh, is not a happy ending. In fact, uh, Fido uh, apparently jumped on a, a, a drunk guy who was sitting on the curb, and the guy took out a knife and, and stabbed Fido. And uh, he uh, managed to run away, but uh, his body was found a couple of days later behind one of the churches. And so there was a kind of irony uh, in it or coincidence that uh, Fido uh, himself was, in a way, uh, assassinated, was murdered at least. Um, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, there was no penalty for this, you know, even for a, a famous dog uh, like Fido that at the time, um, uh, like I said, dogs were considered a nuisance. And uh, so there was no penalty for, for what this person did. Um, I was able to find some uh, newspaper clippings from the Springfield papers that uh, from the time and, and learn a little bit more about the incident and, uh, and who this guy was. And, uh, um, he, he had some other, uh, criminal, he had some criminal issues prior to this. So, uh, not a good guy. And, uh, yeah, it's a very sad, very sad ending, um, um, for Fido, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, you wish it, uh, it would have ended differently, but, uh, that's what we wish for a lot of stories. Is, is there any idea where he is in Springfield? Is there a mark? Uh, you know, I know. Um, uh, we know he was uh, uh, buried at the uh, Roll family uh, house, which now uh, uh, was, it's an AT&T switching station, I think. There's a building, it's an industrial building um, that is on the site. And just for kicks, I uh, I just looked up a couple articles really quick when the, when the building was under construction. Apparently, nothing uh, was found, you know, in, in course of uh, you know digging the foundation or anything. So we we 
yeah, so his his final resting place may very well still be uh, on that property. We don't know exactly where he was buried on the property. Um, and so there are parts of the property that haven't been touched uh, in 100, 150 years. So uh, he, he is in Springfield. And I also mentioned that, of course, uh, there was no pets, dogs, dogs and cats were not spayed and neutered at the time. And uh, they were allowed to roam freely and reproduce at will. So there's a very good chance that some of Fido's uh, descendants are, are, are among us somewhere uh, in America and uh, possibly even in Springfield to this day. Um, so it, I don't know why that somehow cheers me up a little bit that some of Fido's DNA is probably still running around out there. When I read that in your book, I did smile. I was like, yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. I'm sure it is. I mean, what's what's crazy is if we could somehow, uh, if we ever did find uh, Fido's remains, and then we could actually do, you know, like uh, uh, the DNA matching and, and uh, people would suddenly find out that they had a, a dog descended from Lincoln's dog and uh, probably would charge lot of money for uh, <laughs> for, uh, for their dogs uh, so maybe it's best that we don't but yeah he was just a good old-fashioned mutt and um, uh, and uh, I'm sure he uh, may have reproduced excellent uh, is there anything else about uh, the your book and your work oh and just out of curiosity so how long were you in Springfield for the research process? Were you based out of Springfield for a while? or? Yeah, uh, not, I think I was there probably a total of two weeks. Um, the library uh, there is uh, um, fantastic, and uh, I feel terrible because I'm skipping. Um, like, oh, yeah, it's James Cornelius, um, who is who's at the library there, was extremely helpful. And um, I was a little worried Um you know, because it's such a, uh, I don't know what the right word for it would be, subject. It's not a very serious subject, I guess, um, that uh, that they wouldn't take me seriously. But they took me very seriously and, uh, and uh, were very helpful. So um, I was able there and uh, also at the Springfield Public Library where a lot of the newspapers are available on microfilm. Uh, so on in the whole, on whole, it probably took about, uh, you know, a year and a half off and on kind of doing the research and beginning the writing. Usually it's about two years beginning to end, you know, from when you start a project like this until until you come to the end. Um, so I really, I, I really have a soft spot for this book. It's kind of, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm not a dog person. I'm actually a cat person. So it's a new territory for me in a way. And that uh, gave me a, a, a real appreciation for dogs and um, kind of the role they've played in human development. You know, they were the, kind of the first animals that uh, we domesticated or they allowed themselves to be domesticated. So it was really cool. It was a cool experience. Excellent. Yeah, James Cornelius is like my idol. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> and then um, what was the most fascinating thing you kind of learned about Lincoln during your research for this that maybe doesn't show up in the book? Um, well, if it was fascinating, I put it in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys were supposed to ask me about the uh, – 
weirdest Lincoln sighting or something, right? Yeah, that's for. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That's we got for, oh, that, that yeah. Yeah. Too soon, we'll get too to that soon, at the end. Yeah, yeah. Okay, too soon. Yeah. Um, a little foreshadowing know, for the listeners out there. I would, I would, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm teasing mm-hmm. the uh, the end. Um, really, I, I, just overall, it was just how much that animals, how big a role animals played in Lincoln's life. I had no idea. And I wasn't a huge Lincoln. I mean, everybody knows Lincoln if you're interested in American history and that sort of thing. Um, but like I said, just the volume of stories when you start doing the research and just doing word searches in some of these books, and it's like how often dog turns up. How often he mentions dogs in his speeches uh, 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 a couple of times. Uh, um, yeah, the, the 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 volume of stuff that uh, that I found about Lincoln and animals really surprised me, and that's what made me think, well, okay, I can do a you know, I can make a book out of this. Obviously, this is not a Michael Burlingame size book. You can comfortably read the book in a in an afternoon. But um, but I think there's enough st- stuff there that that kind of justifies really looking at this one particular aspect. All right. Oh, and also that Lincoln. Uh, I was really surprised to find that uh, uh, Lincoln was also a mass murderer. I didn't know that before I began the book, but I didn't have room to put it in. There. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact that'll be coming out later. Yeah. Um, so uh, really quickly before we get to our kind of our weekly features here at the end, I did want to give a little bit of time for your other work just to, um, uh, just because I think it's interesting and I hopefully our listeners might want to check some of it out. Um, the Truman book, uh, it sounds like you got a, a lot of uh, positive reviews on the Washington Post is very kind and, I don't want to say kind, they, they, mm-hmm. I'm sure they were being honest and gave you a very strong review. So what brought you to Harry Truman and uh, talk to us a little bit about the road trip? Uh, Truman, uh, I, I um, was working at the public radio station in St. Louis in 98, and I went to the Truman Library to do some research. It was the 50th anniversary of the Whistle Stop Tour in 48. Uh, so it was while I was doing research there, they have, uh, uh, he was a real car guy. So they have displays with his cars in the basement. And so that was kind of, that was where I first heard about this trip. And you talk about the Burlingame book, I think, uh, uh, in the McCullough biography of Truman, it's, this is like a paragraph that he's, you know, so they took this trip. Uh, it was in, uh, uh summer of 53, right after they left the white house that they went on this, I forget, I think it was three week trip across the country, just the two of them, no secret service. Uh, and presidents didn't get pensions at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, that was a really interesting, uh, uh, that was a fun one to do. That was a lot of fun to do. And uh, in a way, a lot like uh, a lot like the Lincoln, uh, Abe and Fido, where you're really kind of taking a small, small thing, this little trip, and using it to, to look at the, the characters uh, a little bigger, um, Harry and, and Bess in that case. Yeah, yeah I love reading that. And you're just like reading it. It's just like envisioning them, like just going to the diner, walking in, and just like, just like this former president just being like an average citizen. I just, I, I really enjoyed that book a great deal. My my favorite, one of the things about that is uh, there's uh, there's like the Ingmar photo mystery in the Lincoln book. The the Truman mystery is he he disappears for I forget what it is like eighteen hours. There's a time where he. He, he wakes up and, you know, because all the papers when he went to Columbus or Dayton or wherever, they would all have articles about Harry Truman had breakfast at this diner. But there's one, there's like a almost a full day where we hear no reports at all of where they were. There's no mention in the in the uh, Truman uh, papers uh, in, in his uh, 
uh, diaries or writings about what they did on that day. So it's it's still a mystery to me. In the book, I speculate that they might have been abducted by a UFO. Uh, <laughs> because that's the only way I could think that apparently that was the one time on the trip that they went into a diner and people did not recognize them. So I think there's something special in that, too, in a way. Well, I just think I find it very fascinating because I think the entire McCullough work, um, I think like his overarching thesis or theme or whatever is like this fairly you know everyday midwestern white american self-made person failure at everything except politics like trying to combine that personality with the huge monumentous task before him with the post-war world especially from a diplomatic standpoint um and like i left that book feeling like like it was it was a huge effort not just a biography but also to kind of paint that picture of this Missourian um, and then you could just take like this little story and, and do essentially the same thing like he's one of us <laughs> you know he's and I think a lot of Lincoln folks are, are drawn to Truman in that same regard where um, someone who just grew up in the Midwest with nothing and you know there's there's a bit of the American dream for better or for worse in both of their stories and they parallel each other uh, so I think there's a lot of uh, you know. I think it's interesting, too. You know, you had uh, an episode I was listening to uh, recently about Joshua Speed, mm-hmm. and it had me thinking of um, uh, uh, Truman's relationship with uh, Eddie, what was his name, his Jewish friend from mm-hmm. Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was kind of an, an idol, un, unlikely uh, a friendship that lasted a very long time and I think had a real personal effect on on. Uh, Eddie Jacobson on uh, Truman and uh, the same way that, you know, Joshua Speed is kind of, you know, his, his family has, has slaves. And, and so they're able to discuss this issue in a way. And uh, uh, anyway, that, that just made me think of that another similarity there. And, uh, and you also have the, the work about uh, Grover Cleveland. Um, the president is a sick man about a surgery that he had on a yacht. Yeah, yeah. So this is if uh, if you're uh, if you're in the need for Robert Cleveland cancer stories, uh, the president is a sick man is the title of that book, and uh, he had a secret cancer operation on a friend's yacht, July first, eighteen ninety three. Uh, they covered it up, and uh, when a reporter learned about it, uh, Cleveland denied the story, and everybody believed Grover Cleveland as he had such a reputation for honesty. And it was only many years later that one of the doctors who performed the surgery finally uh, uh, told the truth about uh, the operation and vindicated the reporter who was then an old man. Um, uh, I am Facebook friends with two of Grover Cleveland's grandchildren. And uh, it's, it's funny because Grover, you know, he was a bachelor when he was elected. Uh, and so he was born in 1839, and he was 60 in 1899 when he had a son. And then that son, Francis, was 60 in 1959, and he had a son and then had a, a daughter in the early 60s. He fathered uh, two children later in life. And so uh, it, it's kind of funny to uh, – you know, I'm always self-conscious when I post – over Cleveland stuff. I'm one of the few people who does uh, <laughs> on social media, but uh, that um, uh, George Cleveland in New Hampshire is going to see it. And I hope mm-hmm. he's not offended, but I usually don't post offensive stuff like that. So yeah, so it was interesting. And then I met Truman's grandson, uh, Clifton, 
uh, while I was researching the the Truman book. Oh. Um, so yeah, so that that was cool. So yes, uh, definitely buy Grover Cleveland, uh, buy the president as a sick man, and learn all about the secret cancer operation on Grover Cleveland. And if you're ever in Philadelphia, the Mütter Museum. It's a museum of medical oddities, and they have Grover Cleveland's tumor in a jar on display. So you can actually see oh. his oral cancer tumor, and a couple of teeth are still stuck in there, too. Wow. Where was that museum? Philadelphia. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, you museum. know what? I was in Philadelphia with Nick, and I was going to go to that museum, and it just it yeah. didn't work out. So. Um, and the, the President is a Sick Man, you don't have to read that whole book in one sitting, right? Like you could read it and then take a break. And then read it again. It's a little Grover Cleveland humor for you. Yeah. All right. Don't, <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you, you should read all my books non-consecutively. <laughs> yeah. There you I go. also like that you chose to focus on the real president for Buffalo and not that hack job, Millard Fillmore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um, uh, it was the it was it was a good excuse for me to go to Buffalo <laughs> and, uh, and do some research, which I did. And they actually have, I don't know if they have a Millard statue up there. They got a nice Grover statue up there. And of course, McKinley got shot. So it's, uh, you got your presidential sites up there. Uh, yeah. I'd uh, rather go see uh, Cleveland's tumor than anything related to <laughs> Millard Fillmore. I actually have a Twitter feud going with Millard Fillmore. So, mm. yeah, he was, um, uh, he was the. He became president. He was a Whig, right? So he was the yeah. president after like Zachary uh, uh, Taylor died of the died in office, right? Yeah. 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 And then uh, you're currently working on an, a book on Robert Kennedy. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing uh, a book about uh, a trip Robert Kennedy took in February of '68, where he visited Eastern Kentucky. It was one of these so-called poverty tours. And he spent two days traveling around uh, eastern Kentucky, visiting with families and holding hearings and uh, and just kind of investigating living conditions there. So what I've been doing the past year or so is, is researching that and spending time trying to find the people that he met with and visit the places he visited. Kind of like the Harry Truman's uh, excellent adventure idea. But this one's a little different because it's uh, really looking very you know, kind of personal to people. A lot of the people that he met with were... Uh, uh, very poor at the time, living in very uh, uh, poor conditions. And so uh, part of the book is going back and looking and seeing how or if things have changed over the past 50 years due to war on poverty and uh, other anti-poverty anti campaigns. And so to look at 50 years, you know, from 68 to 2016, when Eastern Kentucky now voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, but in 68, uh, somebody like Robert Kennedy could go there and incredibly campaign. So it's been a really interesting experience working on that. And uh, I've learned a lot. Excellent. So we're looking forward to that book coming up for sure. I, I read your most mm -hmm. recent blog post, um, which I think uh, could provide a nice little taste if people are kind of looking for what that book might be. Um, but I really liked how you had kind of pointed out through, through a actual uh, historic artifact um, what it may have been like for someone living in abject poverty for a multimillionaire who's never wanted for anything to kind of coming in to try to understand and just the conflict that people may have felt there. Uh, to me, that's just fascinating. That just, that concept is just fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, there's a long, uh, long history of, of this kind of, um, poverty, I don't know. I'm I'm still trying to come up with the right right way to phrase it. But people go to 
politicians especially like to go to very poor places and say, I'm going to make your life better. And uh, it's been going on really for 200 years. And um, so that's that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. part of the story and i think that there's a lot of lincoln and truman in that where when when lincoln and truman would say something like that i think they had a little bit more of people could get behind it because they they knew that right right and 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 even lyndon johnson i mm-hmm. think who you know he grew up dirt poor in texas um uh, and, and so he had a certain that's what makes the kennedy thing really interesting i mean because his 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 like with lincoln his empathy seems very genuine Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a man of riches, and uh, he, but he had empathy, I think, for people who were poor. Uh, so it was a really interesting uh, dynamic at work there. Yeah, it's. It it's I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping to uh, to wrap it up uh, early next year, and then it'll come out in spring of 2020. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting book because this first one I've written, I guess the Steagles and Truman a little bit, but you know, it's, 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 it's fairly recent. And so, um, uh, it's, it's have, it's, it's, it's nice that there are people that you can, you know, talk to who witness these events and remember the events, but it also reminded me sometimes it's nice when everybody's dead. <laughs> it's just a little easier. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's really been a lot of fun. And pedestrianism, don't oh, forget yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah. That's right. When uh, people walk was America's national pastime, America's favorite spectator sport. So that's a that's another one that I poured two years of my life into. Yeah. So pedestrianism, which is about <laughs> the sport of walking, distance, long distance yes, walking, distance, competitive distance walking. Yeah. So, so if Abraham Lincoln were a couple decades younger, how competitive of a walker do you think he could have been? That guy was tall. I mean, he had to have like a huge stride. I mean, his stride had to be like five and a half feet. He's got to be able to cover. I mean, at least like seventy-five miles in twenty-four hours. I mean, yeah. I mean, he walked, didn't he? He loses the horde. Was he? he's in the Black Hawk War? Where did he walk home from? Did oh, it was up here. Yeah, Wisconsin? not far. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, it's, somewhere in Wisconsin, he walked yeah. home. Yeah, yeah it's not I mean, far from where we are now. Nick and I are recording in northern Illinois. Um, yeah. And from here to Springfield, it's 200 miles. So it was probably in the 230, 250 neighborhood. Yeah. So look, and I talk about it in the book, but like, boy, people walked. Like, uh, it's amazing that the, the, the they had a statistic where the average woman uh, in 1830 walked four miles a day fetching water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just getting water, you would walk four miles a day. So uh, people really could walk back. Oh, yeah, he'd be good at walking. He'd so think about that next time your Wi-Fi goes out and you're really upset. <laughs> well, you, you um, in the book, uh, and I don't want to take up too much more time, but the, the whole craze begins with Lincoln because it's a friend, it's a guy who loses a bet on the 1860 election, uh, Edward Weston, and he bet his friend that if Lincoln, if Lincoln wins the election, I'll walk to Washington, and he lived in Boston, so he walked from Boston to Washington in <laughs> March, February, March of uh, 1861, and blah, 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 but anyway, so Lincoln's in that book, too. Yeah, excellent. So that one's called Pedestrianism. So we're looking forward uh, to the Kennedy book coming out. And then, of course, there's quite a lot to read up until that point. So uh, we do have our weekly feature, which we have every week on the show, which is called This Week in Lincoln, in which we bring to you an example of Lincoln kind of coming up out of context or at least outside of a history book um, or a documentary or something like that. And when we have guests on, we invite our guests to supply our This Week in Lincoln. So... uh, 
Matthew Elgio, thank you so much for showing up on the show, coming on the show today and um, giving us your insight into Lincoln and animals and among other things, and for also bringing us This Week in Lincoln. So what do you have for us for This Week in Lincoln? Well, uh, I, uh, my wife, I mentioned, is a foreign service officer, and we were, uh, she was posted to Ulaanbaatar, uh, which is the capital of? Mongolia. There you go. Very good. So we were in Mongolia for three years, and while I was there, I was at the post office uh, and mailing something one time, and I looked at the stamps on display, and they had a Lincoln stamp. Uh, the Mongolian government issued an Abraham Lincoln stamp in, uh, I guess it was, 07 for the 20th anniversary of uh, uh, diplomatic relations with the United States. So they chose Lincoln to be on a stamp, and they had two stamps. One was Genghis Khan, uh, and one was Lincoln. And um, I, I, I later read about this, and, uh, you know, Genghis Khan tried to, tried to unite all the... Mm, you know, the Mong Mongol people uh, in, I forget when it was, was it the 12th century? And, and so they chose Lincoln because Lincoln had tried to keep America united um, uh, in, the, in the 19th century. So I just thought that was really cool to, uh, to see a stamp of Lincoln in Mongolia. I, I would imagine Lincoln's got to be like the most represented president in foreign stamps i'm sure there are a bunch of countries that have put out lincoln stamps but i wonder if any of the mongolians knew who he was <laughs> no that's very cool <laughs> um, that's that, awesome. yeah that's a great example so we'll try to track down a photo of that if you can send us one we'll get it out on social media yeah so are you uh, are you stateside now or are we keeping you up at like an ungodly time no i'm in i'm in lovely arlington virginia excellent okay. uh, we are we are here for uh about nine uh nine or ten months my wife is studying Serbo-Croatian for our next post, which is, can anybody guess? Serbo, so it's probably like Belgrade? No, no good Belgrade. guess. Uh, Kosovo, maybe? Oh, God. It's where the Olympics were held once. Sarajevo? Yes. Sarajevo, 84. Yeah. yeah. And this is something, okay, and then I'm going to let you go. <laughs> this is something I just learned. Gavril Princip, who assassinated the Archduke mm -hmm. in Sarajevo, his family is still there. His mother lived until 1948. Wow. His mother oh. lived to see the end oh. of World War II, oh. and apparently the family is all still there. So anyway, maybe there's something in that too. But I was like, wow, his mom lived like till 1948, which incidentally is the same year that Francis Cleveland, Grover Cleveland's, uh, wife died. Hmm. Wow. There you go. All right. The circle is complete. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Matthew, once again, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us. Once again, listeners, the book is Abe and Fido. You can get it where most books are offered and certainly in the Kindle store. Um, and I'm guessing also the Nook store as well. Other books are Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, uh, The President is a Sick Man, and Pedestrianism. Um, really quickly, the excellent adventure that is a reference to Bill and Ted, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, and it was just sort of a placeholder title that I came up with, and it never got changed. And that's when I learned you can't copyright a title. Oh, Titles nice! Copyright it. Huh. 
Excellent. Uh, my, my, I'm just going to start a new podcast called The Rail Splitter 2. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> so um, so the uncopyrighted uh, title, The Rail Splitter Podcast, thanks you for listening uh, once again this week. We will be back next week with more content for you. But until then, please continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you next week. <laughs>